You're listening to a podcast from 702. John Perlman from 3 to 6 p.m. 702. The Naked Scientist. And it is time for Dr. Chris Smith to take over and answer all of your science-related questions. Give us a call on 011-8830702 and then use the WhatsApp line 0727021702 and let us know what your science-related question is for Dr. Chris to answer. Happy Monday, Doctor. How are you? Happy Monday. I'm very good. How are you? Good, good, good. I'm actually so excited. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm doing my own little bit of research for something I really want to ask you about one of these upcoming weeks. So I just want to prepare myself so that you know, <laughs> we're talking scientist to scientist. <laughs> you have a clue. Can you give me a clue? What, what will I be challenged on? Mm. Before before the show is over. For now, let's go to Godfrey in Reimsich. Godfrey, how are you doing? Hi. Um... Oh, Godfrey, your network is not so great. Can you move around a little bit? Okay, I'm going to pass you back on to Mongezi, our producer, to see if we can get you on a better line there. In the meantime, here's a voice note. Hi there. So, uh, I've got a 14 year old daughter turning 15 she's been using a cell phone and we use an app on google called family link Mm, my apologies for that i just want to quickly check that we've got the right uh voice note for this question that has come through let me just let this system uh refresh very quickly because there is a a question that's come through in the meantime here's another one please ask the doctor which is best tubal Ligation, reversal, or IFV, which is a better option? I'm not sure what IFV is. What's what's that? I'm not clear. They didn't explain. Did they maybe mean IVF? I think they probably do. Yeah. Um, tubal ligation. What this means is that when, <clears throat> excuse me, when you want to stop an egg making it from an ovary down the tubes to where it can be fertilized in the top third of the oviduct and then as an embryo down to the uterus so it can implant. One way to do that is you tie off or they don't strictly tie. Usually you put a staple or a clamp across the oviduct on each side of the uterus and this squeezes the tube flat so nothing can go through in either direction. So the egg can't come down and the sperm can't go up. So there is no fertilization, there is no implantation, there is no pregnancy. Now, some people elect to do this and then later on, for various reasons, they may change their mind. And so they then come back and say, well, I thought I'd finished my family, but in fact, I'd like to have a baby at this stage. And it is possible to reverse a tubal ligation But the results are not guaranteed. Number one, you're older anyway, and age is the biggest risk factor for not falling pregnant. But number two is that when you do anything like that to your innards, you can cause scarring. And scar tissue can sometimes refuse to open up again. And it can mean that the passage of the egg is not straightforward and it just doesn't work. So it can be reversed. And people do sometimes unsterilize themselves, albeit temporarily, in that way. But it's not a guarantee that your fertility will return for all of the reasons we've outlined. And so therefore, the best approach, if someone is thinking about this sort of thing, is to ask yourself how sure you are that you have completed your family before you go down a more surgical route to mm. defer pregnancy 
And if you have any traces or niggles of doubt in your mind, then use a readily reversible method in the meantime while you further develop that decision or history takes and, and time ca- takes care of the decision for you. Okay, okay, completely understandable. <laughs> All right, let's try Godfrey again. Godfrey, hi, in Ramsar. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? I'm all right. Mm. So I have a problem with my skin. Every time I take a bath, right, mm. uh, it itches in, uh, immediately afterwards. Mm. And showers are the worst, actually. Mm. And yeah, I've, I've actually stopped uh, swimming because of that. Well, um, there's one thing that immediately springs to mind, and there's a a strange condition with a long name. It's called aquagenic urticaria. In other words, aqua, water, genic, causing urticaria, skin itchiness and swelling. And in some people, there is inappropriate release of the itchy chemical histamine in the skin, which is caused by water or water immersion or water exposure and especially hot water. And it may be that that's what's going on. But one of the other things to bear in mind is that when we do go for a bath or we go in the shower or we go for a swim in a public pool, we are exposing our skin to various chemicals, whether that's shampoos and soaps or chlorine in the swimming pool. For some people, all of these things can be irritants to the skin. They can cause cracking or microfissuring of the skin. And then allergens from the environment can get in and make you itchy. And if you already have partially inflamed skin, perhaps you have underlying dermatitis or eczema, for example, it can irritate that by opening up the the cracks that are already there in the skin and washing things further in, which are further irritant or, in, in some cases, things you're allergic to. So you've done the right thing by saying, well, I'm going to do the test and either stop it and see if the symptom doesn't recur or or, or re-expose yourself and see if it it does happen, and then try to find out whether it's a particular product or whether it's just plain water, hot water, cold water, and you'll be some of the way towards working out what's causing it. And at that stage, once you've done those sorts of experiments, you'll be much better equipped to go to someone who's a skin specialist, a dermatologist, and get their opinion as to the best way to manage it. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to be going without a shower for the rest of your life. That would, that would be in no one's interest, especially ours. Indeed. Thank you so much, Godfrey in Reimsuch. And here is a voice note. Hi, good afternoon, Rebukhele. Anthony Pretoria. Yeah, I've got a question for the naked scientist. I've got a male and a female dog. My Rottweiler always pees on the car tires. So my question is, what is it that makes the male pee on the tires? Uh, is it a muckle strategy and what does a female dog do in equivalent to that and since time inception there were no tires but there were dogs uh, <laughs> since time immemorial what were they doing where were they peeing thank you so much <laughs> I'm literally going to guess that they were peeing against trees or plants. (laughs) Well, brilliant question. Well, the answer is that dogs, male dogs, are the territorial ones. They are always out there roving around looking for a mate. The female dogs are more fussy, so they're not advertising their presence and their territory in the same way. They are going to select a mate and allow mating with what they judge to be the best candidate to mate with. How do dogs advertise their presence? How do they make their presence known? How do they mark their territory and ward off the opposition? They pee on things. 
why pee on things that are taller, not just on the ground? Because if you put things high up, they get sun on them, but critically wind on them. The sun warms them up and drives off the odours and the wind blows them away. And then other animals in the vicinity can smell them. And so if all dogs mark the same sort of place, then they're more likely to disguise somebody else's pee with their own pee smell, making them the top dog. So that's why they go for a high point, because they'll know that everyone else has gone for a high point. So if you put your pee on top of everyone else's pee, <laughs> you have a chance of actually winning the day and saying, this is my pile of tyres. And you're quite right. In the old days, before piles of tyres, they would have peed up other things, grasses, um, walls, <laughs> and before walls, trees, anything that is basically a high point that they think that's a good place to put my pee. It will blow all into the environment from here and mark me out as top dog. That explains so much. And can I tell you something interesting, Dr. Chris? There are certain figures of speech in um, certain African or black languages in South Africa that they will refer to certain behavior that wives need to overlook that their husbands do. (laughs) So, for example, a mother-in-law might say to a wife, even if a dog goes outside and pees on 10 different trees as long as the dog does what it does which is return home at the end of the day isn't that funny (laughs) it it certainly sort of rings true for some of my friends i can tell you (laughs) all right dr chris smith we'll be back 702 the naked scientist all right, we're still with Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Give us a call on 011-8830702 in the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. And uh, your questions are coming through. Chris, I, I'm feeling sorry for you. I'm, ch- I'm just going to give you a hint ne, about that thing. Doctor? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here with a face of breath. I can barely contain myself. All right. And no, I'm not being sarcastic. What, the what, the what hint is, is around male birth control advancement and the gels. That's the hint. You have your homework. Okay. You have your yeah, homework. Yeah, okay. Well, we, there was a really interesting story on this last week or the week before. So um, mm-hmm. it, it, there's a couple of things it could be. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have in mind. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to more questions. Uh, one says, Tobela Sisi, can you please ask the naked scientist, what makes most of us human beings so scared and terrified of the dead? They are a harmless, innocent corpse. Why does it terrify us? That's from Yazonda in Soweto. Good question. Yeah, well, probably in the same way we've evolved to avoid contagion to preserve our health. Because if you think about what goes along with dead stuff, dead stuff might mean disease. It could mean infection there and then. It could therefore be a threat to our health. So we've evolved to be put off by stuff that's stinky, stuff that's dead and nasty and decaying, and therefore might infect us with something that could kill us. And because a dead person ultimately turns into uh, something that rots down, we avoid that kind of environment because that could infect us. But also what killed that person might kill us. So we, we tend to be on alert when we see that anything has died, whether it's an animal or, a, or another person. And so that's why we tend to be a bit fearful and we find sometimes dealing with death and, and put, laying people to rest a bit icky. 
and, and it's just an evolved trait. And other animals do exactly the same thing. I used to ride horses a lot. And there used to be an abattoir not far from where we used to ride. And you could tell the horses were very much on edge when we went near that area, especially downwind of it. They could smell and they could clearly tell that something was not right in that particular place. And, and their behaviour completely changed. And I, I think that this is the same sort of thing that goes on in us. There's mm. a primitive part of the brain that says um, you should be on alert because something's died and it could be a threat to you. Is it possibly also, and this is more of a psychological perspective, that we are so fearful because it forces us to face our own mortality, which is something we genuinely don't like addressing, be it people who refuse to talk about their last wishes, they don't do estate planning, they don't do wills? I think that's probably true, but I think it probably applies to older people more than younger people. Because when we're young, we don't realise that we're going to die one day. Mm. When we're a bit older, we know we do, but we think we're going to live forever. And when we're older, then we hope we're going to live forever, but we expect that we probably won't. So we think, well, it, I, can't, I can't change the course of history, so I'm mm. going to pretend it isn't going to happen. So we go into denial for a different reason, and we're all guilty of it. We all do it, and you're, you're quite right. There's probably an element of that too, that people don't like funerals because it reminds us of the fact that, that one day it may be our turn or, or the turn of someone even closer to us. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, one question says, hi, Lebo, please ask the naked scientist, when are we going to have a normal pap smear test? That steel thing is so uncomfortable. It's 2023. So that should also change is what they are saying. So um, um, they're referring to the clamp. Um, so is there going to be a period where it doesn't have to be as invasive and as uncomfortable as what it is? And maybe I can add, Doctor, I saw somewhere online that um, in the States they have started allowing people to do self-swabbing. Um, yes. And what's being referred to here is in the early days of cervical cancer screening, then what was involved as Almost all women of reproductive age hopefully know because it's really important to, to get screened because this is one of the leading causes, but also a preventable cause of disease and death around the world in women. But what's involved is to go to the cervix, which is at the top of the vagina, and you are looking for an area which is called the transition zone. And it's where the, the surface lining changes from what's further down the genital tract to a, a different kind of lining that's further up. And in that transition zone, there's a particular high-risk region for getting cervical cancer. So what you try to do is to, is to swab off or sweep off some cells from this area, which are put under the microscope with a particular stain, a papaniculo lao stain, which is why it's called a pap smear. And that stain could highlight potentially cancerous cells. And if those were spotted, then further investigations could be carried out. If they weren't there, then a person's given some reassurance, looks good for now, and then you come back for screening again later. But in more recent years, we've realised that the main or the almost exclusive cause of cervical cancer is a virus. Cervical cancer is effectively a, a sexually transmitted infection. It's caused by the human papilloma virus, HPV. Mm. And there are certain types of that virus which are high risk for getting cervical cancer. And if you don't have that virus, then you don't get cervical cancer. And there's anecdotal and apocryphal evidence that, for instance, nuns that are not sexually active have really low rates of human papilloma of, of, of cancer and low carriage of human papilloma virus. 
some religions where men are circumcised routinely because circumcised men don't carry human papillomavirus to the same degree as uncircumcised men, the partners of those partners also have very low levels of cervical cancer in comparison in certain groups. And so this means we can use the virus as a marker for your disease risk. And so what we're increasingly doing now is swabbing with a much kinder and less invasive and less intrusive swab and looking for the DNA of the human papillomavirus. And if we find that, then we can do a more invasive, intrusive test to look at things more closely. But if we don't find the DNA, there's no virus there. Therefore, your risk of cancer is automatically very, very low. So there is a switch towards doing this more and more, but it is a different way of doing it. It does involve different machinery, training and techniques. Therefore, not everyone everywhere is doing it yet. Okay, thank you so much for that question. One says, hi, please ask the doctor, what makes a person lose a shoe when they die due to sudden death or traumatic um, in, a, in an event like a car accident? Yeah, I've heard this. And I'm not sure there's any really good, proper, unbiased evidence that people really do have one, one shoe on and one shoe off. I think it's more likely that you're, you're not going to find a pair of shoes because if there was a pair of shoes abandoned somewhere, someone would have taken them and used them. So no one wants a single shoe unless they're one-legged um, and it might not even be the right foot. So probably that's the reason. If someone loses a shoe, they're more likely to leave the abandoned shoe behind, whereas if you had a pair of shoes, then they probably would walk off of their own accord, if you see what I mean. So, so I think then what they're asking is, is there something in the event that forces the shoe off so what makes well, them could lose the shoe i mean if you think about the last time you had some mud on your shoes or your boots and you kicked your foot to try and fling the mud off and your boot went with it uh, th- this can happen so if you're in a, in a particularly high velocity um rapid transmission of, of or ma- rapid transfer of momentum type collision where you stop but other bits of you carry on you might whirl over and flick your feet over your head and oh, whirl your shoes yes, off yes. and that and that could be one way in which you'd lose footwear and if you lost just one shoe it will end up abandoned on the road where the trauma happened if you lost both someone will find them and they'll say thank you very much they look like nice shoes to me i got you completely all right and tabby singh in johannesburg hi hi how are you good thanks and you good good my question to the naked scientist is that why are male or men not vaccinated against hpv especially 16 and 18 it is a sexually transmitted disease, and if they are not vaccinated, they are high potential carriers of, of HPV, and it's only women so far that are getting Gardasil and Cervix. I just want to know that it doesn't make sense to me. Mm, okay, Ntabi Singh, doctor. Yes. You're absolutely right that uh, there are certain types of the vaccine, of the virus rather, which are high risk for cervical cancer, and those are the ones that are represented in the vaccine. It's not strictly true that men are not being vaccinated too. In some countries, the focus has been on the women first. And the reason for this is that if you've got limited resources, the women are the ones that that have the highest risk of cancer from HPV causing cervical cancer. Men are not at no risk, but they are at because they don't have a cervix, but they can get cancer elsewhere. Mm. But the target is to drive down rates of, of HPV. So the idea is that you vaccinate with high level of, of coverage the females and the men are secondarily protected by the females not being able to have the high risk types of virus because they're vaccinated. In other countries, though, 
since they have increased the rates and, and comprehensively begun to vaccinate the boys as well. And Australia were first doing this. And since then, other countries, including the UK, have now begun to offer the vaccine comprehensively to boys as well, so that you get both boys and girls protected. And with enough uptake, you protect everybody, even even though some people in the community and the society aren't vaccinated, they get herd immunity through those around them that are. It's been very successful. We've seen our rates of spinal cancer plummet in certain parts of the country in the uh, wake of the vaccine drive. Thank you so much, Ntabi Singh, for that question. Doctor, I look forward to next week, Monday. You've received your clue to the test. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to have to go and do my homework now, aren't I? <laughs> All right. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you so much.